Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host, Zach Griffiths, Senior Investment Grade Strategist, and joining me today is Chaz Johnston, our Senior Analyst covering the energy sector. Chaz, thanks for taking the time today. Of course. Always happy to join you. Thanks for having me. Great. So there's no shortage of key news in your sector recently. We have two mega mergers in the market, starting with Exxon, which announced it was buying Pioneer a couple of weeks ago, and Chevron announced it was buying Hess shortly thereafter. Let's start with your thoughts on the Exxon deal from a high level, and then we can move on to the Chevron deal and hear your thoughts on kind of what it means for the sector broadly, or perhaps the shape of M&A in going into 2024. Sure. Sounds good. It has been a busy few weeks for us. And at first, I would say that it wasn't just two mega mergers that we've seen, but it was the largest upstream deal in, in the past 25 years. Actually, since Exxon's $83 billion merger with Mobile back in 1998. And then that was quickly followed up by the Chevron Hess deal, which happened to be the third largest deal over the past 25 years. So as you can imagine, client questions have just surged when you have the second largest deals in, in the past two and a half decades announced just two weeks apart. And the question everyone has, and, and clearly we'll get to it a little bit later on, is who could be next? And so we've encouraged clients to reach out to us as we're happy to review any combinations of random M&A candidates that they could possibly come up with. So back on the 65 billion Exxon Pioneer deal, in terms of credit metrics, this was not very impactful. Both have extremely strong balance sheets. Net leverage at Exxon is 0.1 times and net leverage at Pioneer was 0.3 times. So it was a much more interesting deal from the equity side. But I would say anytime you have a double A major buying a, a triple B Permian pure play, it, there was going to be a great outcome for bondholders. And you had Pioneer, which was a, a high triple B company, tightened by 40 basis points. Now, there was some rumor of this floating around throughout the year. So it's possible that it could have been a even larger impact had it been uh, a complete surprise. Now, in terms of the asset base, we think it makes a lot of sense for Exxon. The Permian has been a key source for Exxon's long-term growth outlook. And pre-Pioneer, Exxon had somewhat lofty goals of, of growing their Permian production from 550,000 barrels a day in 22 to more than a million barrels per day in 2030. So they were effectively looking to, to double it. And they kept their lofty growth goals in place, even through the Pioneer acquisition. So pro forma production, 1.3 million barrels a day. And they said their plan is now to grow that to 2 million barrels per day by 2030. 
So they're not only maintaining their own full growth outlook and part of this deal, but they're also attempting to grow the pioneer assets, which were previously in a maintenance outlook. And as they do this, they highlighted the deal synergies here at a, a billion dollars in year one, growing to $2 billion annually over the next decade. And if you think about where these synergies are coming from, two thirds improved resource recovery, one third from kind of CapEx and, and other operating efficiencies. Awesome. So, I mean, huge, huge deals in the market, really difficult to overstate how big they are from a, a historical perspective. And so 1 billion in synergies first year plus 2 billion annually over the next decade sounds pretty great. Also sounds like they're keeping a, a pretty ambitious expansion plan into the Permian. And so shifting to the, the Chevron Hess deal, kind of give us the flavor of that, what it means for credit metrics of the new combined entity and kind of give us some scale for the expected synergies there to kind of compare against this Exxon deal. Sure. So I guess not to be outdone by their closest peer, Chevron followed up Exxon's blockbuster announcement with their own $60 billion deal less than a couple weeks later. And this comes after Chevron just closed a $7.5 billion acquisition of PDC and had acquired Noble for $13 billion back in late 2020. But that didn't stop the market from wondering if they were still on the lookout for something larger because they were outbid by Oxy for Anadarko in a $57 billion deal back in 2019. So while everyone was focused on the Permian and who Chevron was going to buy in the Permian, they went a com completely different direction and they acquired Hess, which has no Permian operations at all. In fact, outside of Gulf of Mexico, Hess and Chevron have very little asset overlap. But what Hess does have is a very enviable 30% ownership in the Exxon-led Guyana assets that have turned out to be world-class in, in terms of both resource potential and low cost. I, I believe Enveris said the, at least their allocation of deal value was that this Guyana asset accounted for 80% of the, the value of the transaction here. And then to state the obvious, this was an absolute home run for Hess bondholders being a low triple B issuer being acquired by Exxon. The Hess bonds are in 80 to 85 BIPs. One thing interesting here was that on the equity side, there were a number of questions for John Hess on the call about the valuation and did they leave any value on the table by selling now? But his response was that the 10% you know, premium made sense. Hess equity has doubled over the past two years. And so they're getting bought out in an all equity deal at a, at a premium to that double. And for contacts, I think the XOP is up maybe 45% or so. So Hess's equity has already performed very well. And one thing that I think this could signal to me is that the market has more fully valued Guyana's growth potential. So the, the fact that, that Hess is willing to, to sell now, and also the fact that Exxon was okay letting Chevron, its closest competitor, buy these assets. Because we had heard from a, a number of clients that Exxon had said in, in, you know, in one on one or, or small group style meetings that they wouldn't want any of their major competitor peers to buy into Hess because they saw so much growth in the Guyana asset. But this was a number of years ago. And with the string of announcements that they have made and, and growth outlook that is now baked in, 
you know, that could signal that the market's fully valuing both Guyon's growth potential and, and Hess as a standalone company. One fun fact about this Guyana asset is that Shell was actually the original 50% partner with Exxon and decided to pull out of the project just a year before the initial ISA discovery. So they missed out on a, a lot of value by not participating there. Oh, and you had asked about the synergy comparison. Chevron cited a billion dollars of synergies here. Clearly, there's less potential here given the lack of asset overlap that Exxon and Pioneer enjoy. But I would say that Chevron's synergies are a little bit more concrete with them saying half are coming from corporate costs, 30% are coming from Hess's $15 billion of net operating losses that they will now be able to use, and then 20% just from discontinuing Hess's long-term use of put options to, to reduce risk and, and hedge their crude output. So two huge deals in a short period of time. Certainly be fun for, from our seat to see how this uh, M&A trend plays out. Interesting. So a clearly different breakout in terms of synergies. And so that last part, it's from eliminating a, a hedging strategy that Hess had done that Chevron does not take part in. Is, is that correct? Yes. So Hess has, in, in order to make sure that they have some cash flow and can finance all of the Guyana operations, have been hedging out their, some of their crude production just using put options. While a lot of the larger, better capitalized names in the space choose not to hedge anymore, saying that their balance sheets provide them with that flexibility instead. Interesting. And so you noted that the Chevron deal is an all stock deal. Is that the same for Exxon and Pioneer? Yes. So both the deals, all equity, and this is, you know, I, I would say that not all nearly every energy deal over the past couple of years has, has actually been balance sheet accretive. So we have seen numerous all equity deals. And in many cases, that's because the, the buyers simply prefer equity in many of the deals these days. But in the cases where debt was included, like EQT or, or Marathon's deals from last year, management has pledged to repay all of the acquisition debt over you know, the 18 to 24 months following closing. Which leaves you with a company that's going to have better metrics and larger scale and or diversity. So in, in the case of these two deals, what was interesting is that management will effectively buy back all of the equity being issued over the next few years. So when Chevron made their announcement, they increased their annual buyback target by $2.5 billion to $20 billion. So it's a $60 billion deal. If they keep that pace over a three-year period, they've effectively repurchased all of the equity they're issuing. And on Exxon's side, their buyback target is $35 billion across 23 and 24, so you know, $17.5 billion per year. So over a three to four year period, they will be buying back all the equity issued for Pioneer as well. And I would say that trend generally follows energy M&A over the last few years. It deals at worst have been neutral for credit metrics, and you know, that, that follows a period of time in 2017 to 2019, I guess, where private equity was very active with, within energy M&A and, and it left a lot of the public management teams that we speak to, you know, frustrated to say the least. We would talk to them in behind closed doors meeting and, and they would tell us, we like those assets. We actually put the bid that we, you know, we thought was the best possible bid we could put forward, even taking into account the fact that we have synergies 
and the private equity bidders don't. And they would still be getting outbid by, you know, one to two turns in, in terms of EBITDA. These days, private equity seems absent. And the upstream and, and midstream industries have both seen real consolidation. And, you know, we always like to review the merger backgrounds when all these S4s are released. And it's been interesting to us that private equity hasn't even participated in, in any of these recent deals. Clearly not these two mega mergers we're talking about today because those get a little bit pricey. But I often get asked, you know, why when I mention to clients that we haven't seen much private equity involvement. And I think that the energy transition does play some role in that, but I think it's just more due to the fact that it's the wrong part of the cycle. Energy has performed very well over the past few years. Clearly funding costs are higher these days and most of, of energy is in maintenance mode. So you don't have that, that growth to offset any debt taken on to fund the deal. And, and I think that the combination of these things just make it mean it's, it's much harder for private equity to make some of these deals work. That's interesting. And so from the perspective of who's next, obviously it does not seem like private equity players are set to get back into the market for energy companies. I think you lay out the argument there well, just the combination of where we are in the sector and, and funding costs, which have risen immensely. And you said at the outset that you've been getting questions, who could be next? Do you have a short list of companies that you think could be targets or conversely companies that, that you think might be looking to aggressively acquire in the wake of these two deals? Yeah. So we've been pretty consistently calling for M&A over the you know, last 18 months or so. And, and clearly we weren't expecting any deals of, of this size. You go back in spring, we ran a screen across all of the major basins looking for attractive high yield energy targets. And then we ran another screen more recently, just a couple of days after the Exxon announcement, because client interest really shifted and, and was focused on, you know, who's the next very highly rated player that's going to make an acquisition, essentially focusing on, on Chevron, Conoco and, and EOG. And then recent consolidation trends have left the DJ and Bakken pretty well concentrated. So our focus for M&A targets is really on the Permian and to a lesser extent in Appalachia. So the more recent screen, we looked at the acreage positions to see who had strong overlap and then activity focus within those acreage positions on where wells are being drilled. And when we did that in the Permian, the larger potential targets for someone like a Conoco or EOG came back as Devon or Diamondback. Well, you know, smaller, call it eight to $15 billion targets for either those highly rated issuers or for Devon and Diamondback themselves in the event that they don't want to be an acquisition target and would prefer to be the, the hunter instead of the hunted would include some mid-sized names like Permian Resources, Callan, Crown Rock, and, and Matador. And so one name that, you know, was highlighted in both the previous note back in spring and this one was Crown Rock, which on Thursday saw its bonds jump three points or so. And that was because rumors emerged that Conoco may be looking to buy Crown Rock. Although it listed all the other names we, we just mentioned, like Devin Diamondback, is, along with Marathon, is, is also being potential buyers. But we think based on our screen, Diamondback is the stronger fit. 
in terms of a Crown Rock acquirer, in terms of the acreage and where their activity is. But you know, you can't count Conoco out of that because they have an incredibly strong balance sheet and have called the Permian their growth engine. So it would surprise no one for Conoco to look to continue to grow their Permian acreage. So how does this landscape and what you're thinking in terms of potential acquirers and acquirees, how does that fit into your ratings of these companies? Maybe just kind of going through a few of the, the key names that you think are in play from either side of that. Maybe just taking us through your recommendation that you have on those companies from a very high level perspective. Sure. Uh, I mean, with the two big acquirers that we've seen in Exxon and Chevron, you know, these are two of the highest credit quality issuers in energy, just massive scale, extremely strong balance sheets. But we have both underperform. You know, both issuers have net debt to cap in, in the mid to low single digits, way below their targets of 20 to 25%. And they've said that they intend to lean on their balance sheets so that they can maintain those very large buyback programs that I mentioned earlier. And so when you have names that are that well positioned and, and trade six, maybe a little bit more tight to the, the overall corporate index and even more when looking at the energy index, the only way they can outperform is in a severe downturn. And that just, that, that's not our outlook for the market. Our outperform recs are, are more generally focused on wide issuers that are offering spread pickup in, in names where we see a good amount of stability or names where we see potential catalysts, you know, likely M&A targets, things like that would, that would drive incremental spread compression. Marathon is a name that I mentioned a minute ago as someone that can be involved in M&A and, and is someone that we kind of like for the former reason there as well, in that they're one of the widest upstream issuers that we cover. And we generally see improving credit metrics as a name that is focused on repaying some recent acquisition debt and, and you know, combined with a relatively constructive view we have on the commodity markets. I mean, that's helpful. It certainly makes sense when you have these names that trade so tight you need to have a, a big downturn for any material outperformance there. And that's not our call, as you know, from a strategy perspective, we think the, the U.S. economy keeps humming along in 2024, no recession, but more of just a downshift in growth. And we think that credit markets broadly across IG and high yield can perform well. We still have market weight recommendations for those that we put out in our preliminary 2024 outlook. So we'll be looking to fine tune that over the next month ahead of our annual outlook piece. And so just to, I feel like we can't ignore the FTC that has been quite aggressive. Are there any concerns about either of these deals eventually closing in terms of the FTC having an issue with the size or scale of these mergers? You know, I, I feel like I get these questions somewhat often, given, as you said, the FTC has become more aggressive. We haven't seen a lot of activity, you know, given all the energy M&A that we've seen. For Chevron and Hess, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that there's very little asset overlap, so I, I don't see a great deal of concern for that one. And, and they've already stated their intention to divest of 10 to $15 billion of assets. So you know, in the event there is any concern, I think they're kind of you know, getting ahead of it a little bit. Though we did raise the question of whether Exxon Pioneer could warrant a look when that deal was first announced. So I mentioned earlier, pro forma production, 1.3 million barrels a day. And what that means is as the deal closes, Exxon's Permian production alone will be 10% of total U.S. production. And as they grow that production to 2 million barrels per day, that's only going to further increase their market share. 
at the same time, those growth aspirations and the fact that they maintained their full growth outlook and have said they are going to grow Pioneer's legacy assets as well could be something that keeps the administration happy as it has called on greater crude production to keep a lid on prices. And so that could be something that actually works in their favor. Our view is, is I guess, more generally outside of these two deals is that it's hard to argue a great deal of market power because upstream producers are price takers. They're, you know, they're generally producing and, and selling at a market hub price. So we did see one recent deal that was held up by the FTC in a much smaller transaction. And that was EQT's $5 billion acquisition of Tug Hill. And at the time, it seemed odd to us because the combined company's production was only about 6% of total U.S. gas production, despite the fact that EQT is the nation's largest gas producer. And in the end, it wasn't the upstream operations at all that were the issue. The problem was that the private equity seller that owned the Tug Hill assets also owned a mineral company and was slated to get a board seat at EQT. And so the combination of having a mineral company in Appalachia and a board seat at the largest Appalachia producer would have given them a distinct advantage. And so how they closed the deal was the board seat was lost and the joint mineral company was dissolved. And, you know, the FTC said afterwards that it was the first time in 40 years, I think they said, that their Section 8 was enforced. Very interesting. And so it seems like relatively limited regulatory risk in aggregate and, and maybe a little bit more risk in terms of the Exxon deal, but that's kind of mitigated by sort of the need for more production here in the U.S. And so from that perspective, the deal is more aligned with what the administration would like to see at this point. And so I think this has been hugely helpful for me, kind of getting up to speed on the key points and how you're thinking about the sector. Quickly, when you think about the geopolitical backdrop, and that certainly could be its own podcast, maybe it's a whole series of <laughs> podcasts, but kind of the impact on the energy sector broadly, you know, I wouldn't ask you to predict how this conflict turns out, but everything I've read up to this point indicates it's probably not going to be resolved quickly. And so how is that factoring in to your outlook over the next 12 months? Sure. So the market impact of this has been very interesting. There has been an uptick in spot price volatility, but it seems to surprise a lot of people that I talk to when I point out that the 2024 strip prices are actually down a dollar over the past month. And a lot of that is that concerns surrounding economic weakness and what that means for demand growth going forward has been offsetting concerns surrounding potential supply disruptions. Now, the region is extremely important for global supply, but the direct impacts without larger regional involvement are minimal. So the market is highly focused on whether this expands and becomes a larger regional conflict or becomes something that, you know, as you said, is not resolved quickly, but that doesn't get a great deal of direct involvement from other outside groups. And just to put that into perspective, the, the Middle East makes up roughly a, a third of global crude supply. So yes, there is potential for significant price spikes. But I think the first thing a lot of people are watching for is for kind of a next step is, will Iran get directly involved? 
And there are just so many if thens to go through when you're thinking about how this plays out and who it's going to impact. But I think that's the next one. Is it going to remain, you know, kind of direct or, or indirect involvement? If Iran gets involved, first, what happens to their own crude exports? And then are there going to see, you know, be disruptions in the Strait of Hormuz where 20% of global oil passes through on a daily basis? And then when we want to think about things a little bit more medium term, how will OPEC react if, if price spikes turn out to be sticky? As shale growth has matured, and I guess the shale industry has matured, and shale growth has slowed, OPEC is really back in the driver's seat in terms of balancing global markets. And our view is that at OPEC, and, and especially Saudi Arabia, want to be able to maximize their total resource recovery over the long term. And so, yes, they would certainly benefit from any short-term price spikes, but sticky price spikes are, are not in their best interest long-term because what happens there is that's only going to further incentivize the energy transition and further incentivize importing countries to focus on their own energy security. So in terms of how we're positioned with all of this, the, the only direct issuer impact that's had so far is on Chevron, actually. And Chevron had to take its Tamar field, which is offshore Israel, offline. But in terms of Chevron having the asset base that it has, the Tamar field isn't material. The management said it's tens of millions of dollars for a company that generates 50 to 60 billion in annual EBITDA. So my base case scenario and, and kind of how we're looking at this in terms of the rest of our coverage is that it, it likely warrants a small geopolitical premium. And so that's how we're kind of looking at the macro for now with, with all of these different moving parts. And I would say that our RV recommendations were already positioned with a, a relatively constructive view on global gas and oil prices. So price spikes from here would only really further support our positioning within picks and pans. So the, the conflict is, is something certainly that we're watching very closely. And, you know, with an eye for whether this spreads from where it is now, but it has not changed our picks and pans or recommended positioning within the space thus far. Awesome, Chaz. This has been a really helpful and interesting discussion for me personally. I'm sure all of our listeners enjoyed it very much. That was Chaz Johnson, our senior analyst covering the energy sector. Thanks so much, Chaz. Yep. Thanks for having me, Zach. And thank you all for tuning in. We will catch you next time on No More Risk Better. Thank you. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.